Today marks the official start of Advent, if you didn't know. And if you don't know what Advent is, Advent is a Christian tradition that started in the 4th century. And it was uh, created for a time for Christians to prepare themselves to celebrate the life of Jesus. And then it wasn't until... Um, the Middle Ages, that it became a lot more like narrow and focused to what it is now, which is a time for Christians to prepare themselves to celebrate specifically the coming of Jesus, both that he came and that he is coming again. Advent is a time of remembering that Christ came already, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, if you didn't know, and also a time of anticipation to him coming again. So for the next four Sundays, including this Sunday, we'll be observing Advent, remembering and anticipating Jesus as we work through this little mini-series called The Reality of Christmas. And each week we'll look at a different topic that we pray will help our hearts and minds recalibrate and center around what this season is all about, who this season is all about, namely Jesus, right? Christ, the Christ in Christ Mass, that he is coming again, that he has come once and that he is coming Again, what that says about God and what that means for us. And guys, this season marks a fork in the road for all of us. And we have two paths before us. And we must decide for ourselves and we must decide for our circles of influence and for our families which path we're going to take. We can follow the herd down the path where we are consumed with Christmas lists and Christmas gifts and Christmas gatherings and food getting all the people, the, all the right presents. Or we can follow the more narrow path of intentional intimacy with Jesus. Intentional reflection upon and anticipation of Jesus. The first path is a broad path, right? And it leads to nothing of real eternal value. And for many of us on a soul level, it just leave us empty and for many of us hopeless at the end of it. Not to mention some of us in debt um, and broke. The other one is a narrow, honestly quiet, like very unassuming path that leads to intimacy with Jesus and leaves us full of hope. And so that's on us to decide, guys. That's on us each individually to decide which path we're going to take and which path we're going to lead our people, whoever those people are, down. So to kick off this Advent series, we're going to be talking about hope, specifically That Jesus is our hope. And the text we're going to be using as a springboard today is Psalm 42, verse 5. The psalmist writes here, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning in need of this hope that the psalmist speaks of. Some of us feeling it a lot more than others. So we ask that you would speak to us like it seems you did to that psalmist that day. You would speak to us and you would show us what it means to hope. In God. Jesus, you are our hope. Open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds to see and understand and comprehend the reality of that. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope. The reality of Christmas is this. Jesus is our hope. 
A few years ago, we went through the hardest time of our life. And I developed this like love-hate relationship with hope. The lyrics to this song perfectly describe it for me. It says, I know I need you now, but I hate it. I'm scared that if I lose you, I won't make it. But ain't nobody do me like you do. The way that you break my heart in two. So tell me, Hope, why am I still holding on to you? Most of you know that three years ago this month, um, we had a little baby boy born with this birth defect called anencephaly. His name was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah only lived for 22 hours uh, until we had to say goodbye to him. What most of you probably don't know is that that whole year was jam-packed full of difficult situations and events. The year started with our one-year-old at the time, Kingston, falling off a bed and breaking his collarbone. And then the next day, getting second-degree burns on the entire bottoms of the soles of his feet. And while he's still in a sling and can't walk, we find out that we're having baby number four, which was not expected, and honestly, I was not excited about or planning on. And just as we're starting to get our hearts and minds around the idea of having another baby, we find out that he's got a terminal birth defect from which there's no chance of surviving. Then my dad has a heart attack. Then my best friend literally almost dies in the hospital from some weird fluke heart viral infection. And then his wife, who's my wife's best friend, suddenly at age 33 has to have a hysterectomy. Then one of our closest family friends decides to get drunk one night and get on a motorcycle with his nine-year-old son and almost kill both of them. My grandparents were in the hospital the entire year. I had the worst relational conflict that I had ever had in my adult life. Uh, Emily had all these weird, like, pregnancy things going wrong, and so she was bedridden for weeks at a time, which left me to be a single dad to three kids and a nurse, neither of which I'm any good at. (laughs) And then it was the slowest season that my music career had ever seen, which is great for being home a lot to be a single dad and a nurse, but not great when you're the only breadwinner in the house, which led us to getting three months behind on our mortgage, which then led to foreclosure Um, Letters being dropped off at our doorstep every couple of weeks. Emily was in and out of the hospital the entire year. We had family friends die. We had friends really close to us, the Amelia's who are here today. His son got diagnosed with cancer. I had a six-year-old second cousin get diagnosed with terminal brain brain cancer that year. Two uh, Two uncles of mine died that year. And then we had a grandma die. Needless to say, it was like a really difficult, hard time, the hardest. And hope, well, hope, every time something new hit, was like further and further out of reach for me. She's powerful, right? That hope, right? She, she can get you through the worst stuff in life, but depending on what your hope is in, she can also break your heart like nobody else. And for me, it got to the point where even the smallest thing could like send me off the rails or plunge me into the abyss. I remember this one Christmas party. It was at the Fowler's house um, that year. We were doing a white elephant gift exchange. You know what that is, right? Where you bring a gift and then you like, well, I'll tell you what happens. So 
I pick a random bag from the middle of the, the circle, and I open it up, and there's this coffee mug inside, and my wife falls in love with it. So the way that it works is you can have your gift stolen a couple times after you get it. So I did one of those moves where I hid it under my chair, right? Because I was like, my wife loves this, man. Like, this is good. This is a good thing in the midst of, like, nothing good happening. I was like, a good thing is a mug. And then my buddy goes next, and he steals my mug. And I tried to keep it together, but everybody in the room could, like, feel the tension of, like, how bombed I was. I'm kind of, like, mad that he stole my mug. (laughs) It was this little thing I had hoped for that I expected to go the way I wanted it to. But the worst thing in that season for me, the worst one I can remember, was this one week when everything seemed to be going okay. Nobody had died that week. Nobody had been diagnosed with cancer that week. Emily wasn't in the hospital. She wasn't on bed rest. And a babysitter was available. We were going to go on a date. And then I got a call that afternoon from the babysitter. And she told me that her sister, who was pregnant, um, had gone into labor a little bit early. And so she was going to have to go to the hospital to see the baby. And so I politely said, okay, and hung up the phone, and then I lost it. I laid there on my bed by myself in my room, weeping uncontrollably. Why? Well, it was this teeny, tiny little thing in the midst of nothing going wrong or right and nothing going the way that we expected it to. It was this glimmer of hope that something was going to happen the way that we had expected it to happen. And when it didn't, it wrecked me. And that's when I realized how powerful hope can be. And I had to ask myself if I was ever going to let myself hope for anything again. If I was ever going to let myself be optimistic or hopeful about anything in my life again. Because I was kind of over it. I was over hope. I was done with hoping or expecting anything. And yet I was terrified what might happen if I lost hope. And so those lyrics were birthed. I know I need you now, but I hate it. I'm scared that if I lose you, I won't make it. But ain't nobody do me like you do, the way that you break my heart in two. So tell me, Hope, why am I still holding on to you? The bridge goes on to say, maybe our time's come and gone on. Me and you have had a long time, a nice run. But everything good always has an income. Maybe it's time you and I move on. But you're the one carrying me to the next line. Or have I let you let me down for the last time? I need you more than I've ever had to, but I don't want to. I was scared to hope for anything because I had been let down so many times. You ever felt like that? Anybody ever felt like that, man? I think our psalmist had felt like that. Right? In his song... He says, Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The NIV uses the word disturbed. Why are you disturbed, my soul? The New Living Translation says, uses the word sad. It translates it sad. Why are you sad, my soul? These are the words of a man who had experienced disappointment and discouragement. After the stock market crash of 2008, America felt like this, Right? Our nation felt like this. And she needed something powerful 
to get her back up on her feet. That year, over uh, 3 million people lost their jobs. That year, over 10 million families were displaced, having lost their homes that they owned. And as a people, I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about as a people collectively, we lost over $10 trillion. That was people's retirement money. That was their futures that they had planned for. And so as a country, America needed something powerful to help her rise from the ashes. In a word, hope. America needed hope. It's the reason that Barack Obama's entire campaign that year used the word. It's why the street artist Shepard Ferry designed that iconic image of Obama's face with that word below in big, huge capital letters, H-O-P-E. And it's the word that John Fivreau, Obama's speechwriter, chose to use the word 30 times in Obama's presidential inauguration speech. It was brilliant and perfectly executed marketing. It was precisely what America needed to hear and see in order to feel like she could get up from the ashes. And it was what, why many Americans were able to get out of bed the next morning, was they had something to hope for. Google defines hope as an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes. In other words, hope is a feeling of expectation for a certain thing to happen. And it's powerful, right? Like we've all heard stories of people who experience the worst tragedies ever or, or, or suffering uh, the worst like pain ever or torture ever. And they're able to get through because they have hope. There's something in the future that they have confident expectation of like getting, right? It is powerful, this hope. And so the psalmist in our psalm today speaks to his downcast, depressed, disappointed, and turmoil soul and says, soul, hope. He knew that hope was the remedy for his depression. It was like the healing balm for his hurting soul. So then what does it mean to hope? What does it mean to hope? I mean, a kid says, I hope dad gets home early from work so that we can play soccer together. In this case, hope is a desire for something to happen. People after the 2008 crash said things like, I hope the economy will be revived. In other words, hope is a thing in the future that we desire will come to pass. People might have said, then, a good president is our only hope for a better future. In this case, hope is the thing that will get us to our desired destination. But is this what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hope? Well, kind of. But this kind of hope is missing a massive ingredient that we find in the biblical definition of hope. See, when we use the word hope, as I just did right now, we're kind of expressing a certain level of uncertainty, right? Like, I hope dad gets home early means that I'm not sure that he will, but I hope that he will. I, I hope that the economy can be revived means I'm not positive that it will be. A good president may have brought America to its desired goal, but there was no guarantee that whoever America would elect would be a good president or that they would therefore be able to bring America to its desired goal. When we express hope most of the time, it comes along with a certain level of uncertainty. And rightly so, because which of these things that I just brought up 
can bring us absolute certainty. Nothing. But biblical hope is not just wishful while uncertain thinking and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope does not only desire good to happen, it expects it to happen. And not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is a certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. But in light of the reality of this life, like who, who can be certain about anything? The world is this unstable place. How circumstances will turn out is uncertain. Even the things that God does, we often don't understand why. How can we then have certainty that the good we expect and desire will actually be done? How can we have that kind of hope? Well, the psalmist answers the question for us here in Psalm 42. Notice that he doesn't turn his downcast, depressed, disappointed, and turmoil soul and just say, soul, hope. He says, soul, hope in God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And guys, that's the key. And that's where we can and I for sure have so often lost track. I have put my hope in something other than God. Most often for me, it is in circumstances turning out a certain way or in people doing what I think they should do or even what they say they're going to do. And when they don't, and circumstances don't turn out the way that I expect them to, then I am let down and disappointed because my hope was in something or somebody who was never intended to provide for me that kind of certainty or that kind of security that I was expecting them or that thing to give me. Listen when I say this. No created thing was ever intended to provide the kind of stability and surety that you are looking for. Only God, the creator of all created things, was intended to provide that. The psalmist says it here, hope in God. You remember when we talked about faith a few weeks ago? And we asked the question, what is your faith in? What is our faith in? What is the object of our faith? For instance, your faith could be, is it in circumstances? Is it in things turning out a certain way? Or is your faith in a faithful, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise Good heavenly father, perfect shepherd who has the power to do anything he wants with our circumstances. Where is our faith place? What is the object of our faith? And we talked about the reality that if anything other than God becomes the object of our faith, then the promises that have to do with faith found in scripture are not really for us because that is not what Scripture is talking about when it's talking about faith. It is talking about faith that is placed squarely in God. And if we're living with something other than Him as our object of faith, then not only are those promises not for us, but we will forever be living in a constant state of disappointment. Well, it's the same thing here with hope. In fact, faith and hope work together in tandem. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 
Hope actually works within faith. Faith is like the larger idea, and then hope is this essential component for biblical faith. When faith is directed toward the future, it can be defined or called hope. But faith can also have to do with the present or the past, which is why faith is like the bigger thing, and hope works within that. But both work in tandem. They work together, and hope, like faith, will always have an object. And the steadfast, never-let-you-down kind of hope that the Bible is talking about is a hope whose object is God and God alone. I want to read a few passages of Scripture that um, illuminate this for us. Isaiah 40 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Doesn't that sound good? Like running just living and not getting tired? Like, doesn't that sound good to anybody else in here? I'm tired, dude. I'm tired all the time. Running and not growing weary. Having wings to soar like eagles. Doesn't that sound amazing? But who is it for? Who is it for? Who is this promise for? It is for those who hope, yes, but those who hope in the Lord. Romans 15 says, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy will come. But when? As you trust in him. Hebrews 10 says, Let us now hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. But why? How can we do that? How can we hold on to this hope? He who promised is faithful. That's why we can hold on to the hope. In Psalm 31, 24, he says, be strong and take heart. Who? Who can be strong and take heart? All you who hope in the Lord. Listen, guys, we're not talking about God as if he was this conduit to get us to some other destination that we desire. He's not our huckleberry to get us to some like desired treasure. He is the treasure. He is the destination. He is our greatest gift. Hope is found in him. And if we try to place our hope in anything else, we will always and forever be let down. Have you ever been let down? Have you ever been disappointed or full of discouragement? Maybe you're feeling like that this morning. The psalmist would say to us, friend, hope in God. Listen to this passage from Romans 5. Paul writes to the church there and he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, 
But we exult in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. For many of us, our experience tells us, oh, yes, it does. In fact, it is the great disappointer. In my life, hope has been like the great dream crusher often. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all experienced this at times. That's why we have this popular saying in our culture, I just don't want to get my hopes up. I just don't want to get my hopes up because we know where that can lead us. We've all been there. But when the Bible says here in Romans 5 that hope does not disappoint, it is saying that because the Bible is not talking about hope in things or somebody that can disappoint. The Bible is talking about hope in God and who God is, which can never disappoint. The Bible is saying, child, get your hopes up. We say, I just don't want to get my hopes up. And God says to us, child, get your hopes up in me. Get your hopes up. You can hope. You can hope in me. Disappointment comes because we place our hope in things that can disappoint. We place our hope in things that can change or fail. And when we do this, we build our house of hope on sinking sand. But what Paul is talking about here in Romans is building our house of hope on a rock. A rock that cannot let us down. He says here, Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within your heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint because of who God is. Namely, right here in this passage, specifically because of God's love that does not disappoint. Earthly love disappoints. People's love disappoints. The love of God does not disappoint. Who God is does not disappoint. And when I've been at the most hopeless and most disappointed places in my life, it has been because I placed my hope in something or somebody that could disappoint. When I have built my house on the sand, but the invitation of God is child, come and hope in God, the rock who cannot disappoint. Guys, our hope cannot rest in anything other than him if we want to be on the firm foundation, on firm ground that doesn't shake or move or be pulled out from under us. I need to say a word to um, some single people in here who are just longing for a spouse, who have placed hope in this good thing to come in the future, and this expectation of this good thing to come. And that has become the destination that you're longing for. That has become the treasure that you can't wait to get. I get it. Listen, I get it. I've been there. But I just need to see, say that you will never find what you are looking for in that person or in the institution of marriage. You will never find it. You were not designed to find that in them or in that. And they weren't designed to give that to you. I know the feeling you say, oh, okay. I'm just waiting. I feel like I'm in limbo all the time. But as soon as I, if I just get married, when I get married, then I'll be good. First of all, who knows if you'll ever get married? You don't know that. Who knows what God has planned for you? Second of all, no, you won't. 
No, you won't be good. Spouse or not, you were not designed to find that in somebody, and they weren't designed to give it to you. Married or not, if you're living like that, then you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of disappointment. Church, we all know it. We all know we've experienced this hope is not found in finding that person or landing that job or having that opportunity come through or saving that money or that vision or dream or plan finally coming to fruition. As King Solomon said, all of it is like grasping for the wind, just like trying to grab air. Right? You ever tried to do that? You just look like a maniac, right? Like, it's all grasping for the wind. Hope that does not disappoint can only be found in Jesus. He is our hope. Jesus, listen, is our expectation and assurance of a good thing. This world's going to let us down, man. It's going to let you down. Your spouse is going to let you down. Your friends are going to let you down. Your employees, your employers, your pastors, your mentors, your plans, we're all going to let you down. And you're going to let us down. Everything and everyone in this life will at some point let us down and disappoint, but hope in God does not disappoint. Specifically for our purposes, let me say it like this today. Hope that is set on who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is going to do does not disappoint. I said earlier that Advent is a time for Christians to focus on remembering that Christ came and anticipating that he will come again. And it is in this remembering and it is in this anticipation that we can find hope this morning and every morning for that matter. And not just any hope, but hope that will not disappoint. I want to talk for a minute here about exactly what that can mean for us. First of all, as we remember that Jesus came, right? Remembering that he came, anticipating that he will come. As we remember that he came, what does that mean for us as it pertains to us finding our hope in him? The reality of Christmas is this, that Jesus is our hope. So as we remember the coming of Jesus, let's remember what that says about who God is, the one in whom we place our trust and our, find our hope. The one on whom we build our houses of hope. So here we go. The coming of Jesus means that God is faithful and will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. We saw it all the way from the Garden of Eden. God said, the seed that will come from the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then Jesus came, the Messiah, and in his death, in his resurrection, he crushed the head of the serpent. He who promised is faithful. The coming of Jesus says that God is faithful. The coming of Jesus means that God is good. Only a good God would send his sons. You know that it says, I don't remember where it says it, but it says that the angels, when Jesus came, the angels gawked. It means like they dropped their jaw. Like, oh, what? Jesus! Second person of the Trinity, like as a human, what? Like their jaws were dropped. Coming of Jesus means that God is good. Only a good God would send his son. The coming of Jesus tells us that God is all-powerful. 
Only an all-powerful God could create something from nothing. Jesus in the virgin womb. The coming of Jesus means that God is all-knowing and all-wise. Only an all-knowing and all-wise God could have kept Mary protected from the very king and decree who was set out to kill the very baby in her womb. The coming of Jesus then also means that God prevails. Even in the face of evil men trying to shut up Jesus at his birth and at his death, could not shut up Jesus. His life spoke loud when it came to speak. And even in his death, he conquered death. And then for us, about us, the coming of Jesus means that we are loved. For it was demonstrated in God sending his son while we were still sinners. Jesus came. The coming of Jesus means that we are adopted as sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves of fear or sin or the the rules. The coming of Jesus means that we are adopted as sons and daughters, daughters. We are the children of God. The coming of Jesus means that we have a new identity. Our identity has shifted, guys, from orphan to child, from lost to found, from slave to free. From the ones who fail at keeping all the rules to the ones who are loved and accepted. From the ones who can't say no to their sinful desires to the ones who are more than conquerors. Our identity has shifted from filthy to righteous, from the enemies of God to the friends of God. Jesus' coming means that we have a new identity. We were dead, now we're alive. And the coming of Jesus means that we are cared for by a father, a shepherd, a comforter. In Jesus' coming, he showed us the father. In his walking the earth, he showed us the shepherd. And in his his ascending, he left us the Holy Spirit, the comforter. This is what Jesus' coming says about who God is and who we are. This is what the coming of Jesus means for us. This is where we can place our hope. But... This is just half the story. That's just half the story. This is what we find in Jesus coming the first time. But most often when the Bible talks about hope, it speaks of the future. It is in the context of what is coming in the future. Hope is the future assurance and confident expectation of what is to come. So then, if it's not just in his coming, but also in his coming again that we find hope, then what does his coming again mean for us? First of all, in case you didn't know, and some of you may not, Jesus is coming again. (laughs) He, that's right. (laughs) He came once 2,000 years ago as a humble servant, and he's coming back again as a conquering king. And in his second coming, there is great hope to be found. Jesus said to his Disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's coming again. And when he comes, Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying 
or pain, the first things have passed away. And one of my favorites that speaks of that time is in Isaiah. And it says that no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but for a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. So what does this coming mean for us? Jesus coming again means for us eternal life. A time when that final enemy of death is permanently and forever destroyed. We know that if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Jesus coming again means for us eternal restoration. When everything and everyone in all of creation is finally restored to their intended purpose and design. Jesus coming again means for us eternal prosperity. A time when we will experience the fullness of the riches of his glory. And we will be more satisfied than ever as we receive our full inheritance in Christ, which is God. Do you know that we're going to inherit God? So the Bible says, we're going to inherit God. We're his inheritance, and he's our inheritance. What? Did you hear me? We're going to inherit God. I'm going to wrap God up and put him under the Christmas tree this year. See, see how you feel about it then when you open him up. Jesus coming again means for us eternal satisfaction. A time when we will want for nothing and lack no good thing. Guys, a time when disappointment and discouragement are no longer even in our vocabulary. Jesus coming again means for us eternal health. No more sickness or disease. Jesus coming again means for us eternal rest and peace. A time when there is no longer people being tired. There's no longer strife. There's no longer fighting and wrestling. A time when we won't have to continually be taking off our heavy burdens and exchanging them for the easy yoke of Jesus because our heavy burdens will be gone forever. Jesus coming again means for us eternal joy. A time when there's no more sadness, not an ounce of it. When depression is done away with, heartache is gone, where there's no more tears, there's no more pain. Jesus coming again means for us eternal glory. As we are the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in that order that we may be glorified with him. Jesus coming again means for us eternal victory. A time when there will be no more failing or falling short. No more struggling with the temptations of sin or trying to resist, resist the temptations of the devil. It will be a time of effortless victory. And the coming of Jesus again means for us eternal justice. A time when every wrong will be righted. And for those who haven't trusted in Jesus, where every sin will forever and permanently be dealt with. Guys, look at this. This is the hope that we have. This is the future expectation, certainty of a good thing. The fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and is coming again means all of this for us. And this is what we have hope in. This is the hope that does not disappoint. Both in Christ's first coming, he tells us about who God is and who we are. 
and what his second coming says about what is coming in the future. We can expect this. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. It is an expectation. When the Bible says hope in God, it doesn't mean cross your fingers. It means, to use the words of William Carey, expect great things from God. But we have to fight for it. you got to fight for it. You all know this. We have to fight for it because everything in our culture says hope in this, hope in that. Our own flesh even deceives us. We have to constantly fight for this kind of hope. Like John Piper said, hoping in God does not come naturally for sinners like us. We must preach it to ourselves and preach it diligently and forcefully or we will give way to a downcast and disquieted spirit. Is your spirit disquieted within you? Are you disappointed today? Hope in God. Say to your downcast soul like the psalmist did, hope in God. Listen, I know there's people in this room today who are feeling extremely let down and very much without hope. I just need to say that there is one that you can hope in, guys. And I don't know what your desired destination is. And I don't know that hoping in God will get you there. But I do know it will get you to him. And can I just say from personal experience that he's a better destination? That he's the best destination you'll ever find? Guys, and we'll end with this. This, this season, there's going to be a lot demanding our attention and our affections, and there's going to be a lot of things that we can place our hope in, all of which are about as stable as a fat dude in a red suit with magic reindeer coming down a chimney. The only thing in this life that is actually worth putting our hope in is Jesus. So this season when anxiety begins to bubble up or the, 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 the pressure starts to feel like it's coming close, when you feel yourself becoming greedy or consumed with Christmas lists and Christmas gifts and entertaining people and making sure you're getting all the people all the right stuff, let us remember Jesus. Guys, can we just as a church, as humans, as Christians, as Reality Ventura, this season remember the greatest gift this gift of God lying in a manger, can we commit to every time we see a, a gift under a tree to remember, whoa, God gave the gift of his son. Can we, gosh, I love Christmas lights. I love Christmas lights. I love, I look, I love them. My son came down this morning as I was leaving, four years old, down the stairs. Dad, can I plug in the Christmas lights? Every time we see a light this season, guys, can we remember the light of the world who came into the darkness? And behold, the great light has come. <laughs> and remember what that meant that Jesus walked around the streets of Jerusalem, bringing his light, healing people, raising people from the dead. And as we look at Christmas trees, we love the smell of them. We love it. We love the way they look. Can we remember the tree? Can we remember the tree that Jesus hung on? Can we remember what that meant? What that means for us? What that says about who we are and who God is? And as we anticipate the coming of Christmas morning and that excitement that comes with that, can we anticipate together the coming of Jesus? The coming of Jesus again. Guys, we get to choose this season 
intimacy or distance with our Heavenly Father. And though we may not purposely do it, when we choose hoping in anything else other than God, we are choosing distance. But when we choose hope being in God, we are choosing intimacy. Let's choose intimacy this season. Amen? Amen. Lord, you went to great lengths to bring us in. You designed us to hope in God. And Lord, it's so easy in our fallenness to look to so many other things. But Lord, we want to shift. We want to turn our gaze. We want to turn our hope to you this season.